0: you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our King the reading for today's sermon comes from second Samuel 12 from verse 13 we start our reading after David was confronted by Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba and after he had had her husband Uriah murdered he hear the word of the Lord David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, for nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he's dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you are the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Please comfort, lift up and equip your people with the sweet truth of your promises embodied and confirmed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The text that we have before us is uniquely and beautifully Christological. It spells Christ to us. And how so? We see David sin grievously. Then David is confronted about his sin and he repents. And what then? A son of David dies. And after we see the son of David die, what is the result? David is lifted up from the ground. he's washed. He is anointed. And he gets new clothes. And he then goes and is seated at a table. And that is the case with all of us who are here. Because the greater son of David died for our sins. And this greater son of David gives us his breathtaking blessings. We are not merely forgiven. We are seated at the Lord's table. We are no longer laying in the dust of death. God washes us. He anoints us. He clothes us in Christ. And he feeds us at his table because the much greater son of David the Lord Jesus Christ not only died but he also rose from the dead he returns to us and again and again David said my son will not return to me but the greater son of David returns to us over and over again to comfort us to strengthen us and David said I know I'll go to him and we know we will go to this greater son of David. That's our hope. That's the confidence we have because the greater son of David died for us and rose again from the dead. And in him, we have already passed through death. We have already overcome. Death is a defeated enemy for us all. Also, please notice the confidence that David has. David is sure he will meet his son again. And this is a comforting thought to David. And that means that David is confident that his child is saved. That God preserved that child through death. Because David cannot be saying, well, okay, my son died. One day I'll die too. We'll both be dead. And that's going to be it. The thought that David will go to his son, is a great comfort to him. David is comforted by the thought of meeting his son again. He is confident of the eternal life of his son. And of course, David, as God's chosen prophet and king, is surely not mistaken in this assumption that he will see his son again. Nor does David believe in what we could call salvation by death. It's not enough just to die to enter eternal life. Death does not forgive sins. God forgives sin through the sacrifice of the Messiah, the long ago prophesied seed of the woman, the greater son of David. And it's not enough just to die to be forgiven. We need to be taken through death in the greater son of David. So we see this text is beautifully Christological. This shows us David's confidence about the salvation of his son. And it needs to be based on something. It's not just David hoping against hope. So there needs to be a foundation for this hope that David has. And that foundation is God's covenant. is God's past covenant promises that were true for David and that are true for us. And of course, one of the most central and one of the most precious covenant promises that God gives us is I'll be God to you and to your children after you. I'll be God to you and to your children. I'll be God to you and to your children. Our Reformed forefathers expressed this kind of biblical covenant confidence in the canons of Dort as follows. Quote, Since we must make judgments about God's will from His word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy. Not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included. Godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. Let me repeat that or at least part of that. Since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, godly parents Ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. Brothers and sisters, I want you to have David's confidence when it comes to your children. Or rather, actually, I want you to have much greater confidence than David has. Because I expect that unlike David, the vast majority of you engages in murder and in in adultery exclusively in your hearts, unlike David. So again, David was a murderer and an adulterer, and still he had hope. And thus, I want you to have much greater hope than what we see in our text today. I want you to be able to stand firm in the truth of God's covenant and of His glorious promises. But as I bring the story of David and his infant son to you, I know full well that for some of you, this text has a sting. Or perhaps, maybe, might be more exact to say it pierces and tears your heart apart. And as you read the text, you get chills all over your body, and you try hard not to cry. Because you know what it's like. To pray that God would save and heal your child and to see your child die. You know the deep and perplexing pain of burying your own child. Or perhaps you know what it is like to lose a child in such a way as to have nothing to bury And that is what I want to talk to you about today. Because little children of Christians die too. We live in a broken world. And the Lord Jesus came to save and to heal that world. But the world has not been fully healed yet. And we all know it very well. To put it bluntly, you have either lost a child or you lose a child. Or you know many people who have lost children and who will lose their children. And I'm not just being negativistic. I'm not just being cynical. And I do not enjoy bringing painful memories. And I definitely do not come to scare you from parenthood. It's just the fact. Our children do die. When me and my wife lost our second child, do you know what was the sentence that I heard most often? For my friends. Yeah, that happened to us too. Yeah, we lost one too. Yeah, we lost four. We're not sure, but we lost two or three in the first year of our marriage. And thus, if we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, if we are to weep with those who weep. If we are to be filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. If we are to be always prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. And since these all are commandments of the Lord's apostles and so we better do those things. We need to stand fast on God's promises and the truth of scripture. Because the darkness will come. It will come to us and it will come to others. And we need to listen. We need to hold fast to scripture so that we know where we can find the light for the darkness. And some of you may be in the darkness right now. And I want you to help to push back the darkness that you might be experiencing. And thus let's remind ourselves of what our God is like and how he relates to us and how he relates to our children And of course, much of what I'm going to be saying is equally true and relevant for any sort of suffering, any sort of affliction and grief that you might be going through or the people around you might be going through. In many ways, I hope I'll not be telling you basically any new facts, nothing that you do not already know deep in your bones. I hope that much of what I'm going to be saying will be in the category sky is blue and one plus one equals two. But very often when we are facing hard times, it's the most simple and the most basic truths that we need to hear. And I want to warn you, do not let cheesy slogans steal scriptural truth from you. When Paul writes to the Hebrews who have suffered much persecution, He encourages them by reminding them that quote, God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's Hebrews 13, 5. God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that is not just a trite Christian cliche to put on a cheap teacup with a bunch of kittens. The fact that God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's a rock. That we should build our lives upon if we actually have faith to believe those words. Because I freely admit, those words seem too good to be true. They speak about God's love that seems too good, too tender, too loving to be true in our own lives. Because we know ourselves. But God has said, i never leave you and I'll never forsake you. This is a promise that God originally gave to Joshua. And he was to go and conquer Canaan. So it's not only a promise to build our lives upon. It's a promise that's supposed to empower us to go wage war against the enemies of God. But apparently Paul, and most importantly, the triune God doesn't see an issue in applying that promise to suffering Hebrew Christians in the first century. Apparently, the triune God wants us all to make that promise our own. And I'm saying that up front because I want to silence your inner unbelieving doubter as much as possible. Because we all carry that professional doubter in us. Anytime we hear a comforting Bible passage, anytime God gives a promise to us, there's the subtle or sometimes not so subtle, yeah, but. Yeah, but uh, he will not do it for you. Yeah, but don't try it because you might be disappointed. Yeah, but that's actually for people who have like much better faith than you have. Well, yeah, but actually, you know, when God says he will provide for all your needs and he'll be with you, that's like, you know, spiritual and stuff. Yeah, but hath God said? Yes, yes, he has said it. In the words of Paul, as many as the promises of God are in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are yes. Therefore, through him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. The second Corinthians 1.20. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to cancel God's promises. He did not come to abolish them. He did not come to redefine them. He did not come to spiritualize them. He came to fulfill and to confirm them all. And thus, Paul applies the promise which God originally gave to Joshua to us all as a matter of course. Paul doesn't think twice of applying God's Old Covenant, Old Testament promises to us. So from now on, no yeah buts. God said it. And now, let's go back to Christianity 101, back to the sky is blue and 1 plus 1 equals 2. An important truth that we all need to remember, one, God is not distant no matter how you feel. In Acts 17, Paul tells us that God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And it's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Think about that. Ponder that. Meditate on that. Get consumed by this truth. In him we live. He is the source of being. He is the I am. He is reality. He so much is. He is so real that His words, the words which He uses to speak all of this created world, are so real. They are so worthy that you can touch them. These are God's words. We live in a spoken world. God is so true, so real that you can touch what He speaks. God's truth is so true. God's truth is so real that the truth walked the earth and ate fish and washed the feet of his disciples. That's how true God's truth is. And this absolute I am is near to his people. Or should we say this absolute I am is near to each one of his Beloved, children. And more than that, it's not just general omnipresence of God. This I am says that he is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm thirty-four, eighteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57, 15. So in him, in this great I am, we live. And yet, this great I am says that he is uniquely near to those who are brokenhearted, To those who are grieved to those who are crushed in spirit. Basically, you can say God has two palaces where he chooses to dwell in heaven and with those who are grieved, with those who are afflicted. And it's no bother to him to comfort us. He is so good that he chooses. He takes pleasure in visiting us in our tears and in our brokenness. So on God's regular days, He is still nearer to each one of you, much nearer, much closer than your innermost being. He's infinitely closer to you than you are to yourself. And yet, when you're grieved, when you're broken, He promises to somehow be even closer to comfort you, to lift you up, and to save you. Because, truth number two, God is compassionate and merciful. Our God, the God who is pleased to dwell with the brokenhearted, is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. That's Second Corinthians 1, 3-4. So our God wants to be known as the God who comforts His people. He is God of all comfort. You know, when my two year old runs to me in tears and says, Daddy, I hurt myself. I need a hug. Do I think twice about it? Of course I don't. I'm moved by love and compassion because, well, who would not be? But still, I'm just a dad and I'm a sinful dad at that. But God is. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So how much more will he be moved by compassion to comfort us? And this God of comfort, this God of compassion, this God of mercy commands us. Not just recommends, not kind of perhaps you might consider trying. He commands us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. It's 1 Peter 5 7. It means that we as Christians, we do not have the right to keep our fear and to keep our pain and our grief and our anxiety to ourselves. Trying to keep them to ourselves would be disobedience. God commands us to cast all, not some, not the worst, but all our cares on Him because He cares. He is not too busy dealing with other people. He is not too busy seeking His own glory. He cares. And by the way, He is so good that He seeks His glory, among other things, through comforting us in our affliction. And thus, as Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are not the ones guarding our peace. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And again, that's not a tried motivational cliche. That is a divine promise. And this God who cares for us, this God who promises Promises to guard our hearts and minds with His peace. Can fulfill that promise no matter what happens. Because three, God is sovereign. One of the primary pieces of pastoral counsel that we hear from the Lord Jesus is something like, Take a deep breath. Look at the birds. God is good and He is in control. It's going to be okay. In Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus tells us, Do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And don't let the little yeah tell you, Well, am I? Am I not? Yes, you are. God said it. And in Matthew 10, he adds Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So our God fully governs and predestines and decrees and directs the flight of every single bird and the life story of every single one of your hairs, And I'm sure those are adventures and beautiful stories. (laughs) And all of that is good news. The absolute and all-embracing sovereignty of God is not a chain that's preventing us from escaping the malicious whims of a capricious bully in the sky. God's sovereignty really is good news. The absolute and all-embracing sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which we can rest our head on even in the darkest night. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 26 to 27. God will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he is almighty God and desires to do this because he is a faithful father. God upholds us with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. So everything that happens in our life comes from the fatherly hand of a loving and faithful father who is in control over everything. And that's something that we need to get into our bones. Everything comes, comes from a fatherly hand and we can say with a loving smile. And this fatherly hand governs history so that for God will heal the whole world. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 110.1 tells us. The Lord says to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time taking water to sea. sand to the beach. Or smoked brisket to Texas. <laughs> and I know your pastors have been teaching you positive and optimistic view of history. And I'll therefore try to be brief. The scripture clearly teaches us that the history of the world after the Lord's coming has been, and more importantly, the history will be, of course, with certain ups and downs, will be the history of kingdom growth, the history of kingdom expansion, the history of footstooling of Christ's enemies. And that footstooling will be successful. Everything that the sin and fall of the first Adam corrupted will be much more healed and glorified through the work of the last Adam and then some. I would encourage you, read Romans 5. Deal with what God says in Romans 5. Because we are told that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We are not able to imagine that. Hey, Adam destroyed everything. And the scripture tells us, Yeah, and you have no idea what the Lord Jesus is going to do with it. How much grace, how much healing, how much life he is going to bring everywhere. And this story that we are all in, this glorious story of redemption and healing is absolutely crucial. And it's absolutely crucial even, if not primarily, in the way we face suffering and death. We Christians are at war with sin, death, and the devil. And it is a war that each one of us will die in. In other words, we are not getting out of this life alive. But it is a war in which the Lord Jesus Christ has already given us the ultimate victory. And thus, because we are on the side that has already won, we can go and we can fight valiantly. And we know that songs about this war will be sung all through eternity. And we will bear the scars of this war. And we will feast. And we will tell stories. And we will laugh. And we will sing. And we will toast to our king. And because of how good our God is, even our little ones, those who died when they were three months old or three years old or three days old, they will have played their crucial role. We might not know precisely how this is going to happen, but we know that in God's mysterious, gracious, and glorious providence, it is so. Don't make the mistake of thinking that only the lives who have had the chance to pray and to pay the tithe and to hand out tracts, those are the only lives that actually count, because that's just patently not the case. Remember what we read in Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And this is true not only after the birth of our children, it is true even before it. Our children, however little they are, are one of our most powerful weapons. That's what God clearly says in Psalm 8 and in other places. If we care to believe Psalm 8, the littlest ones are actually our SWAT teams. And therefore, let me repeat myself. Even our little ones who died when they are three months old, or those who fail to implant, and as we will never know about them until the day of resurrection. All of them will have played their crucial role. They have won. They have overcome death. And I want to assure you, this is not not just me being sentimental. This is not just me waxing poetic. Because, five, God gives us promises for and about our children. The scripture is full of promises for and about covenant children. That is, the children of at least one believing parent. As I'm sure you well know here. And it was great to hear this reflected in the liturgy. But still, let's remind ourselves of what the scripture says. We have already seen the confidence of David about the salvation of his child, despite the fact that it was conceived um, in, let's say, less than ideal or legitimate circumstances. So let's go through a quick, rapid fire of God's promises. And remember, as we go through them, no yeah buts. Genesis 17, 7. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Isaiah 44, 3. I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 59 21. And as for me, this is my covenant. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. 1 Corinthians 7:14 The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy Notice Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 7 Otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy Paul is not trying To prove that the children of believers are holy. That they are God's chosen covenant members. He uses the fact of our children's holiness as the basis of his argument. In other words, we could paraphrase 1 Corinthians 7.14. You see, the children of Christians are holy. Okay, we can all agree on that. Which proves that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. And we need to make sure this is how we think of our children. Of course... Like, how could you think anything else that our kids being holy? What are you talking about? That's where we are supposed to be. But that's not all. The Psalter, that is the normative hymn book and inspired prayer book of our people, tells us that children of believers know God from their mother's womb. For example, Psalm 22, 9 to 10. Lord, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalm 71 verses 5 to 6. For you O Lord are my hope, my trust O Lord from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. And when our people across centuries and millennia came across these passages, they were not supposed to say, okay, that's Weird, to say the least. You know, that's just plain weird. Like knowing God from my mother's womb is definitely not my case. And it's definitely the case with my children either. They were to internalize this kind of thinking that the book of Psalms presents to us. Just like they were to internalize any other scripture. Again, when they were reading and singing and praying the Psalms, there was no place for yeah, but God's sovereign grace in the life of their preborn children was to be a no brainer to them. Or, in other words, the preborn John the Baptist, who recognizes the Lord Jesus while still being in his mother's womb, is not the exception. He is the biblical norm. And, of course, how's that possible? Again, the answer is that God's sovereign grace fulfills his covenant promises. Because the fact is that six, God claims our children as his own. The scripture tells us that on the quote-unquote general level, the Lord is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. We see that, for example, in Psalm 68. And of course, this is all the more true when it comes to the children and widows among his covenant people, among his beloved elect. Again, we have already seen... The illegitimate child of David, whom God was willing to claim as his own, whom God was willing to save. Now, please, if you would turn to Ezekiel 16. In Ezekiel 16, we see God confronting the unfaithful, idolatrous Israel. And we will read Ezekiel 16 from verse 17. Once again, God is confronting Israel in their idolatry. Ezekiel 16 from verse 17. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured where your horing so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering of fire by them so how does god call those little ones who were slaughtered by the idolaters he calls them my children Israel had sunk to the deepest sewer of idolatry and human sacrifice. And yet, in all that faithlessness, God is faithful. God is calling the children of his unfaithful covenant people, my children. That is how much he is father to the fatherless. That's how much he loves the little children. If he loved and claimed the children of adulterers and of human-sacrificing idolaters among His covenant people, how much more must He love and claim and save the little children of His faithful? And we we need to believe this. And it might not be easy, but this is what the Word says, and we have no choice but to believe it. Because that's how amazingly gracious and merciful our God is. And the last passage that I want to mention in this context is Psalm 103. The whole Psalm 103 is David's beautiful description of how good God is to his people. But for now, let's notice just verses 17 to 18. Psalm 103, 17 to 18. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments so god's love and covenant faithfulness is on his faithful people and on their children's children let me repeat it those who fear him and on their children's children and again no yeah buts. i admit It sounds pretty witty to emphasize the need for personal faith by saying, Well, God has children, but he has no grandchildren. But David, when he writes this psalm, he respectfully disagrees. God sovereignly, graciously, and with deep love claims our children and our grandchildren as his. And we have no right to question that. We have no right to object to that. This is what he sovereignly chooses to do. So faith believes Him and faith says, listen up kid, God is good. He gave us His covenant promises. We as a family are going to heaven to be with Him and that includes you. Capish? And one day when my joints are all aching and stuff, you are going to have kids. And guess what? They are coming too. And the response of faith is supposed to be, sir, yes, sir. God claims our children as the sovereign Lord and as a loving Father, period. He, after all, is their parent first and foremost. He loves them and cares for them more and better than we ever could. God loves the little saints. And this is not just a mere conjecture. This is not a mere assumption. This is not a speculation. This is the revealed truth of Scripture. It's the truth. That is so truthful that back when this truth walked the earth, this truth took the little ones in his arms and blessed them with more love than we could ever that we could ever muster. And I don't mean we as parents; I mean we all who are here together. And this, this amazing love, is what we need to have in mind as we return to where we began. We all have seen, we all will see young children die. We who are parents might from time to time be losing sleep because what if something happens to the little one? Some of you might be terrified of parenthood because what if, what if, what if, what if if something happens? And I want to stop you right there. Because let me fill out the rest of the picture for you. Because it's still true that when the little children come to Jesus, he still takes them in his arms and he blesses them. Just imagine, there's the open door. Imagine that the Lord Jesus comes in and walks down to your row. He looks at your little one and he stretches out his holy hand. And he says, Don't worry. I'll take care of him. You will see him in glory. Trust me. You have my word. Because that is exactly what happens when you hear the doctor say, I'm terribly sorry. We have lost the heartbeat. When a moment like that comes, you can nearly hear the Lord Jesus saying, trust me. You have my word. Let the little children come to me. And I'm not saying it will be easy to let our little ones go. We would so much love to keep them. But we need to believe that God is a much better parent than we are. And when you look into our hearts, it's not too difficult to believe. This is where the beauty Of God's sovereign grace shines the brightest. Because we didn't go out into the world to find the Lord. He came down from heaven to find us and to save us. And to save our little children. And we have his word. But don't hear me wrong. We will mourn for our children. And we should mourn. It's a perfectly biblical thing to do. But we are to mourn like those who have hope. And when I say it's a perfectly biblical to mourn, look at the Lord Jesus when he is faced with death of Lazarus. If the word in flesh can shed tears, so can we. But in the Lord Jesus, we've already passed through death. And our children have passed through death with us. We and they have overcome And therefore, we can be grateful. We can be grateful like Job. We can be grateful for the Savior that we have, for the Savior who loves the little children. And we can be grateful for all those years and months and weeks, maybe just days, when we had the privilege to love our children here in this world. Because it was a privilege that we had them here for a while, But all of those days, weeks, years, all of them were just a tiny foretaste of the endless millennia that we will spend loving them in glory and rejoicing with them in the presence of our triune God. If you loved your child, they died. And the love is painful. and You can still feel it. Guess what? You ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be glorious. And may all that May all the pain that you feel, may all the mourning that you experience, and at the same time, may all the gratitude and all the confident hope that we have in God, may all that give us the zeal to wage war against sin and against death and against the devil because they deserve all the hell that we can give them. Let us pray. Father of mercies and God of all comfort, Please comfort us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted. Fill us with confidence in your word and the work of your son so that we might go through life with confidence that is greater than David's. And with the view of our eternal resurrected hope through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.